Please take your Bibles if you would like to follow along. I'm going to read Ephesians, the fourth chapter, where we find Paul addressing the unity that is to be present in the church which Christ has purchased with His own blood. And then we will find at the end of the chapter various admonitions uh, concerning how we're to speak and relate to one another in the church of Jesus Christ as well. And so let us consider these words from the fourth chapter of Ephesians. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance, ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him, 
and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Thus far the reading of God's Word. I think I'll use similar introduction uh, as I used when our elders met last week with regard to to some uh, points that I think are important in discussions uh, of this nature. <clears throat> How would you counsel a couple who came to you with uh, very severe problems in communication? Really, uh, a relationship that was being very, very much affected, perhaps even to the point of uh, considering divorce. How would you counsel such a, a couple? What kinds of things would you uh, tell them? What kind of information would you give to them so that they could work through some of the areas that they needed to work through? Let me suggest to you three, three items that, you, that I would uh, want to give to them uh, in order to further process of reconciliation. You would want them, first of all, I think, to keep lines of communication open between themselves. Now, I'm certainly uh, leaving a lot of things out in my advice here, assuming you know God's forgiveness and repentance and a lot of things like that. I'm not putting those things in. These are three areas that I would just have you consider. You'd want them to keep lines of communication open. In other words, you'd want them to learn to speak graciously one to another. You'd want them to learn to speak with honor one to another. To speak the truth, yes, absolutely, speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love. Not to hurt somebody, but to help. Not to destroy, but to edify. And the truth sometimes hurts, that's true. But nevertheless, your motive is not to hurt, not to destroy and you would be hopefully communicating to them that's not your motive. Your, your motive in speaking the truth is because you love them. You would want them, as far as keeping lines of communication open, also to teach them don't interrupt one another. 
be courteous. You'd want them to watch carefully their own body language. You know, uh, you can say a whole lot of things in the way that you that you uh, 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 hold your your arms and your hands and position yourself and the expressions on your face and all these types of things communicate tons. So you'd want to watch those kinds of things. The second thing that you may want to tell them is that you would want them to keep their ears open to one another. Be a good listener. The Proverbs are full of, of, of exhortations not to judge what someone says until they finish it. Let, be a good listener. Uh, James says, be, be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. So, be a good listener. And thirdly, you'd want them to keep their minds open. Communication lines open, their ears open, and their minds opened. In other words, what I would put under this would be don't allow preconceived ideas to overrule your better judgment. Just because you've always done it this way, because this is what you've become accustomed to, don't always look at change as necessarily being evil or wrong or, or don't look at the fact that someone holds a different perspective than you. Don't necessarily allow your preconceived ideas simply to overrule your better judgment in listening to what they have to say. Along with that, don't allow pride or prejudice to keep you from carefully considering the other's position. And finally, uh, under keeping your minds open, don't try to save face. Uh, this is something, if I were in the United States, uh, very typical of Americans, but maybe of Canadians as well. Uh, don't try to save face um, in the interest of truth. Don't try to save face before others who might even believe that you have capitulated, that you've caved in to someone else who has argued more persuasively. See, a lot of people may look at you and say, I've been depending on that person to take a stand for me. And they see you capitulate. They may say, they failed me. Well, don't allow that even, don't even allow that to, to cause you to close your mind to the truth. Whatever the truth is, if we're really lovers of truth, we will not allow that to hinder us from pursuing the truth. None of those things. You see, we are all in one sense married uh, to one another in, in the sense that we are joined by covenant to one another. And there may be some disagreement present uh, in our midst on some of these issues. But we must do everything within our power and within the limits of truth to come to righteous like-mindedness. That's our, that's our God-given responsibility to come to one mind in regard to the faith. God is not pleased to see His church going in a hundred different directions on all of these issues. God is not pleased. Uh, he finds it contemptible. 
God calls us throughout his word to be like-minded. Let me simply point you to some references. Romans chapter 12, verse 16, and I'll, I'll just read these off very quickly. I'm not making a whole lot of commentary on them, but I just want you to see how many times we are called to like-mindedness, to view things together in one mind, Romans 12:16 says, "Be of the same mind one uh, uh, one toward another." Uh, the lighting is when I put my Bible down there, it, uh, it casts a shadow, and I can't see it very well. Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus. Now notice verse 6, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One mind and one mouth. We're saying the same thing, we're believing the same thing. This is God's rule. It's what God through his apostle commands us to strive for. 1 Corinthians 1.10 Again, notice very carefully the teaching here. Now, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. A lot of ones and sames in that particular verse. Speak the same thing, no divisions, have the same mind and the same judgment. 2 Corinthians 13.11 Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Philippians 1.27 Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Not the faiths, not the many gospels, not the many different truths that you all disagree over, but the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And again, like-minded, the same love, one accord and one mind. Philippians 3.16 Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, 
let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Walking according to the same rule, minding the same thing. One rule. Not many rules as far as different kinds of standards. One standard by which we're to walk that God has given to us in His church. And then finally, 1 Peter 3.8. Finally be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise blessing, knowing that ye are there unto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Be all of you of one mind, Peter says. And that's what we're striving for <clears throat> by having our meeting tonight, is that we might be of one mind, that our church may be of one mind, that we might all speak the same thing, that we might believe the same thing, and worship in the same way. Not only for our church, but as I just begin by way of just kind of a preliminary remark, that's our desire for all of the churches of Jesus Christ. Not simply those you know, that are within our denomination, but that all churches that profess to be Christian would be of one mind, have one faith, one worship, one discipline, one government, one doctrine. You say, well, that's a lot to ask. Well, <clears throat> it's impossible in our own strength. It's only a work of the Holy Spirit that can accomplish that. But I believe that's what the millennium is all about, is bringing us to that oneness. And I don't envision the millennium being a place where we will have a thousand different denominations with a thousand different ways of worshiping God and believing things about God as we presently see the world divided within the Christian community. That's not what I believe that we will see in that glorious time. But we will see a reformation where there will be one mind, one faith, one worship and doctrine and government and discipline. Because Jesus Christ will reign from heaven in a way that will bring that to pass. Okay, that's preliminary remarks. Um, let's go to point two now. The direction of the session, that is, the direction of your elders. Your session has come to realize by, we believe, God's grace, that we have been functioning more like independents and congregationalists in our church government and worship than like Presbyterians that we profess to be. How so, you may ask. Well, let me give you the how so's here. Rather, first of all, rather than following the directory for public worship, which we find in the back of our 
confession of faith, rather than following the directory for public worship and the form of government, which is in the back of uh, our confession of faith, which was adopted by our own presbytery that we're associated with and was adopted both of those uh, standards, the Directory for Public Worship and the form of government were adopted within our Presbytery on October the 1st, 1994. Rather than following them, your session has rather taken an, uh, an independent approach to our subordinate standards, not carefully implementing them as we know, now believe that we should have done from the very beginning. That's the first way that we believe we've acted more like independents and congregationalists. But second of all, rather than following the directory for public worship and the form of government which were handed down to us by perhaps the most eminent gathering of pastors, elders, and theologians ever to assemble since the days of the apostles, an assembly of which Richard Baxter, that renowned pastor, uh, in England, a Puritan, though we disagree with uh, some of uh, the things that Richard Baxter uh, held to, I want to make that qualification, but never, nevertheless uh, has written tons of material, just a, volu- a voluminous uh, amount of uh, uh, material. Much of it very helpful, too. Uh, Richard Baxter was a contemporary of the Westminster Assembly, said that the divines, and I'm quoting now, quote, the divines there congregated were men of eminent learning and godliness, ministerial ability and fidelity. And being not worthy to be one of them myself, I may the more freely speak that truth which I know, even in the face of malice and envy, that so far as I am able to judge by the information of all history, the Christian world since the days of the apostles had never a synod of more excellent divines. That's what Richard Baxter had to say about the Westminster Assembly. And furthermore, under the same point, rather than following the directory for public worship and the form of government passed on to us by such capable theologians who labored in this assembly from July 1, 1643 to, to February the 22nd, 1649. That is a period covering five years, seven months, and 22 days, during which time they held 1163 sessions Rather than following an assembly that has laid down according to Presbyterian principles of worship and government, rather than following all of what they gave to us, we have rather, by our own non-conformity to these standards, presumed a knowledge superior to theirs. Superior not simply to one man's knowledge, that would be quite presumptive on our, on our, case, uh, on our parts, even one of the divines. But we presumed a knowledge superior to the collective knowledge and wisdom of all of those men. Perhaps the, the, 
the most noble and eminent of all assemblies ever to gather together. We have in the various matters related to worship allowed our ignorance, if you will, allowed our ignorance in certain areas to hold greater weight than their collective knowledge and wisdom. You see, we would freely, as elders, admit we're not sure about a lot of these areas as it pertains to worship because we have not studied them well enough, we've not thought through them well enough, and yet we were acting on our, on our ignorance. By following certain practices in worship, we were saying, I'm not sure what we should do here, but we'll just continue in the same line and in the same vein, though we realized what we were doing was contrary to the collective knowledge and wisdom of all of the Westminster Assembly. So we were again, we believe, allowing our ignorance to hold greater weight than their knowledge. 1,163 sessions that they spent developing these subordinate standards. In other words, where we have not been sure as to what we should do in reforming certain aspects of our worship, we have assumed in effect that the Westminster divines were wrong until proven right rather than assuming that they were right until proven wrong. That's been our assumption, whether we said that or not. We were acting accordingly. And we would say that's the height of presumption based on what we know about that assembly and what they've produced in the Confession of Faith. We believe we've been making the wrong assumption and we want to correct that in our approach to worship. Our Scottish Presbyterian and covenanted forefathers defended with their own blood, with their own lives, these very documents. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger catechism, shorter catechism, the form of government and directory for public worship, they defended those things and were willing to die for them because they were convinced they were agreeable to the Word of God. And I certainly would not be able to defend with my life all of our current practices in worship. And be able to defend them with my life saying, I know that they're agreeable to the Word of God. And so, for these reasons, your session is compelled to bring our worship into conformity with our Presbyterian standards. We're not doing anything particularly noteworthy. We don't want any... If anything, we're ashamed. If anything, we're embarrassed and, and we, we seek God's forgiveness, which we will talk about uh, this coming Lord's Day. So we don't believe we're doing anything noteworthy. But we do believe we are simply acting like the Presbyterians we profess to be. The third point that I'd like to make deals with the whole idea of a covenanted reformation. A covenanted reformation. You know, I believe each of us desires biblical and covenanted reformation in the church of Jesus Christ throughout the whole world. 
In other words, we desire the church to be one, covenantally united to one another, one church, not many, many different churches. We desire that. There's something wrong with us if we don't desire that. That is and should be our desire throughout the whole world to desire biblical and covenanted reformation, not only in the church, but also in all civil governments as well. The big question simply is this, how are we, by God's grace, to promote such a reformation? Well, we know that we should be praying and, and being faithful in our families, in our own local church and as individuals. We know that certainly that is an extremely important part of, of this whole reformation. We know that it can't occur apart from the Holy Spirit of God that this it must be a gracious work of the Spirit of God to bring reformation. So we're not saying that this is something that we would, we would expect to occur through our own, uh, merely through our own efforts. We realize that God's grace alone can accomplish this. So when I state what I'm about to state, I'm presuming all of those things. I believe there is a biblical and covenanted, covenanted uh, pattern of reformation that we can follow. I believe that we do not need to reinvent the wheel. In our session believes, we do not need to reinvent the wheel here. In order to have a form, God must take care of, of the, the, the spirit within people, but to provide a form and a pattern and a rule for covenanted reformation there is one already. We don't have to go about hunting and searching and spending thousands of hours trying to develop such a rule or form or pattern. There is one already. You see, there was a biblical and covenanted reformation that united Scotland, England, and Ireland in the 1640s under these subordinate standards. The Westminster Confession of Faith, Larger catechism, shorter catechism, directory for public worship, form a church government, and the solemn league and covenant. Those were the standards. The goal of that Reformation that occurred in 1640, that's known as the Second Reformation, the goal of that Reformation, as related to the Church of Jesus Christ, was biblical uniformity in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. Uniformity of practice in those areas and belief as well. Their goal was not to have all of these different churches, again, differing on a confession of faith as to what they believed. Their goal was not to have everyone differing on a way to worship God. Their goal was not to have different standards in the way in which they were ruled in their government, uh, in the church. Nor was their goal to have uh, different ways of discipline. But it was to be uniform in all of these ways. That is the goal of covenanted reformation uniformity in all of these areas. As I've already said, there can only be in, in, in biblical unity 
You cannot have biblical unity apart from one faith. There must be only one faith as taught in Ephesians 4 or 5 if we are to, to be one. I want to read to you just a few excerpts about the covenanted reformation so that you have a little bit of appreciation for what these men were doing, what their goals were. Again, realize their goal, their goal was unity. Their goal was not division and schism within the church. Their goal was unity. Now listen, reading from uh, Hetherington's History of the Westminster Assembly of Divines, published by Stillwater's Revival Books. Um, and on page 337 um, through 339, I'm just going to pick out some excerpts. Hetherington says, There was one great and even sublime idea brought somewhat indefinitely before the Westminster Assembly, which has not yet been realized. The idea of a Protestant union throughout Christendom, not merely for the purpose of counterbalancing popery, but in order to purify, strengthen, and unite all true Christian churches, so that with combined energy and zeal they might go forth in glad compliance with the Redeemer's commands, teaching all nations and preaching the everlasting gospel to every creature under heaven. This truly magnificent and also truly Christian idea seems to have originated in the mind of that distinguished man, Alexander Henderson. It was suggested by him to the Scottish commissioners and by them partially brought before the English Parliament, requesting them to direct the assembly to write letters to the Protestant churches in France, Holland, Switzerland, and other Reformed churches. Along with these letters were sent copies of the Solemn League and Covenant, a document which might itself form the basis of such a Protestant union. The deep-thinking divines of the Netherlands apprehended the idea and in their answer not only expressed their approbation of the covenant, but also desired to join in it with the British kingdoms. And finally, on one occasion, Henderson procured a passport to go to Holland, most probably for the purpose of prosecuting this grand idea. But the intrigues of politicians, the delays caused by the conduct of the independents, and the narrow-minded Erastianism of the English Parliament all conspired to prevent the assembly from entering farther into that glorious, truly glorious Christian enterprise. Days of trouble and darkness came. Persecution wore out the great men of that remarkable period. Pure and vital Christianity was stricken to the earth and trampled underfoot. That was their goal, though. To understand that was what they were pursuing with this covenanted reformation. And as I've already alluded to, that, I believe, will be the kind of covenanted reformation we will see in the millennial period. 
But here we have documents that were for that very purpose that actually brought three whole nations together in agreement in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. That's what the Westminster Assembly was striving for and I believe that is what we as well must be striving for. Dear ones, we have the most well thought out pattern and rule for such a biblical and covenanted reformation that man has yet used toward that goal. We have that rule right here. The Scripture is our primary standard and we're not holding this above the Word of God, but as far as a pattern for this covenanted reformation, we have that handed down to us by the Westminster Assembly. And we, your elders, believe Puritan Reformed Church should be walking according to it. Fourthly, and finally, what practices are yet inconsistent with our directory for public worship? What practices are we and do we believe are yet contrary, incompatible with the, the directory for public worship that need to be changed? Well, first of all, <clears throat> the order or the sequence of our worship. And that would be just... To, some of these you, I'm sure, will... Some of you may jump up and down for joy at some of the changes. There may be some that you're not particularly happy about. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll just pray that God will grant us the grace, all of us, to see that this is really for ours as well as our children's blessing. But first of all, the order or sequence of worship, the Westminster Directory of Public Worship says that the call to worship should be first, then prayer, and then a psalm. The remain, I think the remainder of our order of worship is uh, in line with what the Confession of Faith says, but uh, that's a very simple uh, change or transition. I don't think anybody is going to lose any sleep over that change. The second change is a little more significant, and it's the role of the minister in worship. <clears throat> First of all, under the role of minister in worship, the minister is ordinarily to offer all prayers to the Lord on behalf of the congregation in public worship and is to read the scripture as well. Well, our present practice has been to share that responsibility with ruling elders in our congregation. The Westminster Directory for Public Worship says it's the minister who should do so. Second, under this point, the directory allows that, quote, such as intend the ministry, that is, probationers or licentiates, may occasionally both read the word and exercise their gift in preaching in the congregation if allowed by the presbytery thereunto. And so, there, we'll see that there are some exceptions to the rule that, that I just mentioned about the minister leading in prayer uh, and, 
and uh, reading the word. Here's one of those exceptions on the part of a probationer, one who intends the ministry and is approved by the presbytery. Thirdly, the directory does allow for, quote, some other fit person appointed by him, that is the minister, and the other ruling officers to lead the singing of the psalms. So the minister can either lead the psalms himself or the, the directory for public worship does permit uh, others whom the uh, minister or the elders appoint to lead the singing of the psalms. And then fourthly, under the role of the minister, though not specifically mentioned in the directory for public worship, however, the first and second books of discipline and first and second books of discipline from the Church uh, uh, of Scotland do allow uh, the church to appoint what they called readers or exhorters, readers, where there are no ministers to conduct worship. And it says this in the first book of discipline, quote, to the Kirks, that is churches, where no ministers can be had presently, must be appointed the most apt men that distinctly can read the common prayers in the scriptures. And so they did appoint readers who were qualified by the, the ministers would interview and the, and the presbytery would appoint and allow, in that case, uh, for the edification of a congregation temporarily the hopes that this reader himself would develop into a minister to be able to lead that congregation. But it was a stopgap measure that you had these saints gathered there. Are they not going to be able to corporately worship together? Well, this was something they saw as necessary and extraordinary times. And we say that because we have an entire uh, church uh, in Prince George that we oversee. And they have no minister, but they have no ruling elders either. And we have appointed, for the time being, uh, men to, to lead worship. Now, no one is preaching there. They do watch the, the uh, taped sermons for the preaching of God's Word. But we do intend also to begin uh, to ask so that we can be much more careful about even the prayers that are offered, that the, that the men there uh, write their prayers out and read them to us before they pray them on the Lord's Day, so that there just can be more uh, care. Uh, the readers of the prayers that are referred to here, where they were reading in the uh, uh, first book of discipline, they were reading prayers from the, from the Geneva Book of Church Order. And uh, uh, so that's what they were doing when they didn't have a minister. They were reading their, their prayers. Here we're saying that, that they would as well do the same thing but approve the prayers. So this appears to be another qualification as, as, as it concerns the role of the minister in worship. The third category of change is the posture in worship. And I re refer specifically to prayer. There are three postures for prayer that are specifically mentioned in the Scripture. Prostrating oneself, kneeling, and standing. 
And it appears uh, in the uh, biblical testimony that when God's people gathered together corporately as one people, that the normal practice was to stand uh, to pray. Uh, in fact, uh, our present practice of sitting while we pray um, is not uh, uh, mentioned in the Scripture at all that I know of. And so, um, not only are we not doing one of the three possible, at uh, presently, three possible postures, we're doing one that's not even mentioned. Furthermore, standing for prayer in corporate worship has been the received practice of the church from Old Testament times to New Testament times and throughout church history. And particularly, um, our own Scottish Presbyterian forefathers. Under the posture of worship, we will, however, be sitting for the other ordinances in worship. We'll be standing for prayer and sitting for the other ordinances in worship. The fourth, uh, the fourth uh, change is in regard to the reading of the Scripture. Uh, we have been reading from the Old Testament and the New Testament, which the Directory for Public Worship speaks of, but the Directory speaks of reading in order so that we read through the whole Bible. Uh, over a period of time, we read through the whole Bible uh, as we read, just go sequentially through the Bible. We're reading chapter 1 and chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, and just going right uh, week after week after week. And that way, again, there's familiarity with the whole Word of God. There's not repetition in texts that are that are being read, that is stated as well in the in the uh, directory for public worship. The next uh, change has to do with the version of the Bible. We will be returning to the authorized version, which was the version uh, approved by the Westminster Assembly. It was the version that they used in their citations for all of their proof texts. It was the King James version, the authorized version. Next uh, change, uh, the version of the Psalter that we will be using. We are switching from the RPCNA Psalter to the Scottish Metrical Psalter, which was approved by the Westminster Assembly. Great care was taken with this particular Psalter, far more care than, than uh, um, one can imagine. Uh, the, the, the abilities of, the, of these men in the original languages and before that they uh, uh, presented it to the public at large, it went through uh, committees more than once on approving this. And it is, um, again, I'm no uh, a Hebrew scholar, uh, expert, but I do uh, have some familiarity with Hebrew. And comparing even just the first ten psalms, uh, out of the Scottish metrical with the with the RPCNA Psalter, hands down the Scottish metrical is far more faithful. You'll see even taking your English version 
and comparing the two Psalters, you'll see very clearly, even with a, a faithful English version, that the RPCNA tends to be much more free with the way in which the, the verses flow. And uh, we want to be more faithful to the text. There may be, in the Scottish metrical Psalter, language like in the authorized version, the King James Version, that seems archaic, obsolete, outdated. But we can, we can cope with that. We can explain uh, to our children what that means, a word here and there, so that they can understand what they're singing or what they're reading. But it's much more important to know that you've got a faithful uh, Psalter, one that's uh, uh, closer to the Hebrew text. And uh, uh, we're not saying that the King James Version is uh, inspired. We're not saying that the Scottish metrical Psalter is inspired. Only the original autographs are inspired, but we do believe that these are faithful translations or versions that God has preserved for His church. And uh, quite frankly, until the higher critical period in the late 1800s, um, uh, the, the King James Version was received, was the received text, uh, and didn't have any... Uh, uh, anything competing with it, rivaling uh, it in that regard. It was the received text by the church. And uh, a plethora of, of new versions have come out in the 20th century. And they are based upon different principles of textual criticism, leaving out entire passages uh, uh, out of the Word of God. And uh, we ought to be concerned about that. In, in conjunction with the uh, change of the Psalter, the session has talked about uh, providing a copy of the Psalter, at least one copy of the Psalter to each family. Um, and giving, in other words, seeing that each family at least has one Psalter for the head of the family to be able to, to use for our, for our members and our regular visitors so that they can uh, benefit from uh, from this, uh, uh, we believe, very helpful tool. And so, uh, as we make that change, we will, if, if families do want other or more Psalters than that, then, um, then they will have to uh, consider uh, purchasing them uh, the, the, themselves. But, um, but anyway, we do want to see that every family has a, a copy of that. <clears throat> One other thing that comes to mind uh, simply is that uh, it's much easier to sing out of the Scottish metrical Psalter in many, many other ways. Uh, most of the Psalms are in common meter. Uh, there's only a few that are not, which means that theoretically, if you knew one tune, you could sing nearly the whole Psalter with one tune. If all you knew was Amazing Grace, you could sing nearly the whole Psalter to that one tune, and uh, uh, one of the many benefits uh, to uh, this to this uh, psalter that came out of the Westminster Assembly. So you don't have to le learn, uh, you know, a hundred and fifty different tunes uh, to be able to uh, sing uh, out of the uh, the Scottish metrical psalter. Uh, the next area, uh, and I've got a few more. Uh, is the language of prayer. 
And I'm not talking about I'm going to begin praying in Latin, uh, but uh, I'm talking about that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that in prayer, uh, that as I lead prayer, I will be praying to God, uh, not using the the more modern uh, use of the second person singular, simply you, but using the, the um, uh, thee and thou uh, uh, as the second person singular. The reason for, for that simply is <clears throat> that the word you, and, and, and there are two or three reasons, but the word you um, can mean, in the, as we now know it, can mean uh, refer to either singular or plural. We don't have a way of distinguishing between singular and plural. When I say you, you have to determine that from the context. When we pray to God, all prayers to God in the Bible are in the singular. There is no prayer in the plural. God is not prayed to using in using the second person pronoun. God is not prayed to ever in the second person plural. He's always prayed to in the second person singular. There is no way to make that distinction, to be as faithful as we possibly can in praying to God using our present language. Now, the, at the time of the Westminster Assembly, they were no longer speaking to one another using these and thous. Uh, that had passed from the scene. They were no longer referring, when they would refer to another individual, they were no longer using these and thous. And yet, they continued to use thee and thou as they spoke to God. And that was one of the reasons because it was very clear that they were speaking biblically, faithfully, to God in the second person singular. And it's the only way in the English language that we know how to do that. And so, this is something to consider in your own devotional prayer life. And uh, as you, as all of us will be doing, we'll probably be, for a while, maybe mixing the two because we forget but God will certainly understand what we're seeking to accomplish and what our desire is in being faithful. But again, until probably the 1940s or the 1950s, that's the way everybody prayed. I remember you know, growing up in a Christian home, and that was the way everybody prayed. It wasn't uh, you know, uh, praying uh, with you and referring to God, but it was always praying thee and thou. And so, really, with the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, this is where we have seen this change. This has been the universal practice. It was practiced, and as you read through the, the Confession of Faith, when it talks about the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, how does it address God? Thy will be done. Thy, uh, uh, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. It speaks, again, using those very terms that the Bible uses. And in regard to the Lord's Supper, we have already uh, covered in a Bible study, but we will be coming to a table to receive the Lord's t- t- uh, Supper. We'll be sitting around the table. I will not distribute the elements to every single person, but the elements will be from, from me passed from one person to the next person to the next person. 
And that's, again, following most closely the biblical pattern and is what is stated in our, in our uh, directory for public worship. We're, we're considering, uh, still looking at the issue, trying to determine, I, I get, maybe some of us already know for certain, but some of us may still be a little uncertain. But before the, the next Lord's Supper, we will, by God's grace, have this one figured out too, as to what the directory, directory uh, says with regard to uh, a common cup or, uh, and whether a common cup should be used. And so, uh, that we, we still need to, to consider. But we'll be using the same, the same standard, the same evidence that we're using for these other things. It's just a little, just a, a, a one reading. Uh, it's, it's not that easy to be able to determine. One needs to do a little more investigation and uh, checking out of these things. But I simply mention that as another thing to, that, uh, that we are considering. Then, um, <clears throat> in regard to, uh, finally, the last thing I'd like to mention... And these I've just, uh, you know, focused on our worship service. Um, there may be some things in the directory for public worship that, that pertain to things outside the worship, the, the normal constituted worship service, which you can look at as well. But we're just focusing at this point primarily upon the worship service. <clears throat> the last one is the singing of psalms. The singing of psalms. And this may uh, and probably will be the most difficult transition. I don't want to predispose you to that necessarily, but uh, I think that this probably would, would be the one that, that uh, uh, might be at least uh, most difficult. And uh, I'll just briefly mention what is involved in this in our Directory for Public Worship. Uh, first of all, before the Psalms are sung, a brief introduction... Uh, uh, it's appropriate for the minister to give a brief introduction to the psalm that's being sung, significant truths contained in the psalm, what the psalm generally is about, that kind of thing, just to give an overview very briefly before we sing. Second, uh, we will be singing the psalms line by line. Rather than singing the whole psalm through continuously, we will be singing the psalm line by line. This is found, page 393, in this volume under of Singing of Psalms in the Directory for Public Worship. It says that the whole congregation may join herein. Everyone that can read is to have a psalm book. And all others not disabled by age or otherwise are to be exhorted to learn to read. But for the present, where many in the congregation cannot read, it is convenient that the minister or some other fit person appointed by him and the other ruling, uh, ruling officers do read the psalm line by line before the singing thereof. And because, therefore, there were many in the congregation who couldn't read due to illiteracy primarily, that seems to be the context, but also, uh, no doubt, due to age, uh, due to being disabled, uh, uh, you know, if you had a, uh, someone who was deaf um, uh, or someone who was... Uh, blind and had not memorized the Psalms yet, uh, someone who is a brand new uh, Christian um, and did not uh, maybe own a Psalter of his own or something like that, there may be various reasons why, um, That, uh, but primarily in the context it seems to be uh, emphasizing the fact that many could not read. 
and therefore to be able to have the greatest amount of participation on the part of the whole congregation in praising God, uh, the, the directory for public worship uh, speaks of the uh, psalms being sung line by line. Now, <clears throat> as I said, <clears throat> this this will be probably uh, new and different. Uh, before we before we uh, uh, go into our qu- question and uh, well, what, I'm trying to think how we might do this. Before we leave tonight, before we conclude our meeting, we do want to sing a psalm. Uh, and lining it out uh, so that the congregation that is here can um, uh, participate. And so, again, you can see um, most of us have maybe children who are very young and who cannot read yet. And so that you parents can be greatly encouraged as you see even your children who have the ability to, to speak and to listen and to understand, but yet do not have the ability to read yet, and that they will be able to join in with as much understanding as they possess at this particular point in time in their in their development, but they'll be able to join in in singing the praises of God uh, with God's people, and that will be, I I pray, a glorious blessing for for all of us who have children in that situation that we will really appreciate the fact that all of our children, obviously infants won't be able to participate, but uh, we're talking about children who can't understand, yet who cannot read. We would simply say, um, we would do all that we, we talked about this in our session, we would do all that we possibly could do to try and help someone who is deaf in our congregation to be able to participate in the worship of God. We would try and find someone who could sign out and, and who could, uh, through sign language, uh, sign out the message, uh, sign uh, the psalm, you know, this type of thing. Uh, I mean, if they had uh, a book, they could certainly read. But uh, we would do all that we could do for someone who's deaf to help them to, to uh, understand. We wouldn't want to send them to another church down the road who had a deaf ministry, Right. So we would be obligated to do all we could to help them to participate in the worship of God. A blind person in our congregation, we would do all that we could to help them to participate. Uh, a, a Bible in Braille, a psalm book in Braille, whatever we could do, we would do uh, for, uh, uh, in order to help them to worship. We would do that with someone who is too young to read, and we should be willing to do that with someone who is too young to read as well. Um, and uh, yet who can participate in the worship of God but simply cannot read yet. Now we realize as a session that the wording of this section, and I'm almost finished, that the wording of this section on lining out the psalm states, but for the present. We realize that's what it says. We've not overlooked that. It says that. We see it. But we're not, and we're not saying that this necessarily need be a perpetual practice forever and ever and ever and ever. We're not saying necessarily that that need be a perpetual practice. However, we are saying as Presbyterians who have submitted 
ourselves to these standards that we cannot simply choose to change our standards congregation by congregation or individual by individual. That we just do not have the authority to overrule an entire assembly who has made this particular ruling and when it's not a sinful practice to do so. And so we believe for the time being until there is an assembly who can do so and can do so without disaffecting uh, members of the congregation that, that we can bring along our people, where there wouldn't be, uh, over an issue like this, a, a, a split or a division in, in, the, uh, in the church uh, over something that is not sinful, uh, that we should uh, continue uh, to practice uh, this. Uh, and especially if we see benefits to our children, I think that that's even a, a, another reason just to consider that. I think that that covers most of the the areas. As I said, uh, the areas related to worship anyway. Uh, there may be other areas, again, in the Directory for Public Worship that you would want to read and check out uh, as to... Uh, as to uh, what we are uh, what we are following as a session, but that covers the primary areas I think in regard to the uh, to the worship uh, service anyway, the public worship of God. Um, what we'll do I think at this particular point in time is uh, uh, rather than having prayer immediately and questions afterwards, we'd like to get these on the tape. I think uh, uh, questions. If you have questions, we'll we'll go ahead and entertain some questions at this time. And uh, um, I would just encourage you, this is not a time, um, we don't really want this to be a time to debate. Uh, we, If you have questions, we would like to, to, to answer those questions for you. Um, but... Um, but if but if you disagree, uh, we would say there'd be a better form in which to debate the issue than than right now uh, on tape. And uh, we would uh, therefore uh, again just encourage if you have questions, if you like follow up on something, uh, another reason for something, if you didn't understand, you want clarification. Uh, those are all very valid. So, any questions? Uh, Marie. Um, in the future, let's say the Geneva Bible was translated into, um, let's say, the exact same wording, but just the, the letters are changed so it's easier to read. Uh, and if that were uniform throughout the land, could it be without um, going against the confession or external principle? Could that be used? Um, and, and the reason I'm asking also, knowing a little bit of the, the history of the translation of the King James. Could it be moved up in the essence or in the desire for purity? I think that, yeah, any, any, uh, no one's again saying with regard to the King James Version or the Scottish Metrical Psalter that it, it's impossible to improve upon these. Uh, no one's making that claim. Um, and, uh, but it would take, again, I think, uh, a kind of decision um, at, a, at a General Assembly uh, level, um, and uh, uh, there would need to be, uh, I think, you wouldn't want, again, 
um, congregation splitting over this issue as to which version. So you need to take all those kinds of things into... But theoretically, if you're just saying theoretically, um, you know, using the Geneva Bible as an example, yeah, theoretically, I think that uh, we would we would say that that could happen, but a lot of things would need to be in place, I think, in order to see that realized. Ian, you had a question? In the... Um reading of the scripture, reading in order from beginning of the Bible to the end, mm-hmm. out of the Old Testament and also out of the New Testament, mm-hmm. it seems to be mentioning reading one chapter mm-hmm. per Sabbath. Right. That would necessitate about 18 years to get all the way through the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. Would, would it be just one chapter? Yeah, it speaks of reading one, uh, and again, um, um, they may, and many of the churches had different formats on the Lord's Day. Some had uh, one worship service in the morning, and then they had a catechism class in the afternoon. Some had two worship services on the Lord's Day, and perhaps in that kind of a situation, you'd make it through twice as fast. Uh, it only take, you know, how long did you say? 18 years. 18 years only take nine years to, to make it through then. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that would be uh, uh, obviously... Um, uh, it would take a while to work your way through it, uh, doing uh, following that particular uh, format. But that seems to be what they're saying, nevertheless. Reg? Yeah, you didn't mention it, but I, I think this is the, what it is. is uh, wouldn't the synodical authority come from the Scottish General Assembly adopting the Westminster documents later? After the Westminster Assembly? Yeah, I don't know if you mentioned that, but in the line of the historical testimony for President Yeah, I may not have specifically. I think I was alluding to it, uh, but uh, the, the comment is that as far as uh, the... That's when I said assembly. Um, that's what I was referring to was the Scottish Assembly and, and their uh, enacting these. But because the Westminster Assembly was a collection of... of um, uh, of many divines together, but it was not uh, officially a church, one church assembly. And so, yeah, the, the Scottish, uh, the, the assembly of the Church of Scotland would be that particular assembly that would have the, that authority uh, to make this, these decisions and rules that, that we would be honoring and submitting to ultimately. One, one yes. Point. I think I'm not 100 percent sure, but I'm pretty sure that the that uh, Scottish metrical version of the Psalms has every Psalm uh, in common meter. There are some alternate versions uh-huh. uh, where they, there's about 10 where you can sing uh, that are alternate uh, versions of particular Psalms. But I think you can sing all 150 in common. Yeah, I was just going to check in the back here. I think it said. Um, it lists here metrical index uh, in the back of this uh, uh, version. Unless otherwise indicated, each psalm is arranged in common meter. The, uh, the following list indicates those selections which are not set in common meter. And so it lists uh, these psalms here. There's looks like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. About 14 psalms that are not in common meter. Oh. Yeah, maybe 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 you're right because it says first version, second version, first version, first version, first. Maybe it's talking about their, as you said, alternate psalms in in regard to these. And so you might be right. I've not checked that out, and if you have, then that even makes it uh, better. Oh, I know that was a very blessing to our family. 
Yeah. So it may be, let me qualify my statement that I made earlier. It may be that, in fact, you can sing all 150 psalms uh, if you know Amazing Grace. <laughs> Are there any other questions? Yes, Rich. Have you guys checked if there were other synodical decisions along the way that we would be bound by, or that you know? Well, since that time, um, with regard to other matters that are not uh, mentioned in the Directory for Public Worship, mm -hmm. things like that. No, um, no, we're not. We're not uh, familiar with uh, with other uh, with other matters that relate to worship. Any anything that we're familiar with would be, again, I think that we would recognize would be those assemblies that have been, you know, consistent with the Westminster standards and uh, have basically preserved and held uh, the Directory for Public Worship and that type of thing. Anybody who stepped outside of the covenanted uniformity, yeah. uh, it would be notable. First, anytime people did that, there was church splits. Mm -hmm. And usually that's where, uh, that's where these type of things come up. Marie? I, I just missed that you said the three positions of prayer were prostrate, kneeling, and standing. Mm -hmm. when, by prostrate, you mean lying face down, prostrate, mm -hmm. as it were? Right. If uh, there are no other questions, um, I think what we will what we will do is uh, rise and uh, close in prayer, and then we will sing. We'll invite the children to come up, and we'll close by singing a, a psalm together. So let us uh, let us rise and uh, ask God's blessing upon our our time. Let's remember in prayer uh, the Shackelford family. Uh, Today uh, was uh, Linda's father's uh, funeral. He, he was uh, buried today. And so let's pray for uh, the, uh, them. Let's uh, continue to pray for Ian and his work situation. Uh, God would uh, supply work for him. And uh, pray for our church and the transition that, it, that it's going through in regard to these areas, that, uh, that God would, uh, would again bless us with one mouth, with one mind, uh, with one faith, as we pursue these, as we pursue these uh, matters, let's uh, close in prayer. Almighty God, we do praise Thee and glorify Thee, for Thou art worthy; Thou alone art worthy. We thank Thee that Thou hast given to us Thy blessed Holy Spirit. We praise Thee that Thou hast given to us not many spirits, but one spirit that has inspired and inspired one faith and caused, Lord God, there to be one true church. We pray, our Heavenly Father, that Thou would give to us 
Thy grace, that as we approach Thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would do so with hearts filled with gratitude and thanksgiving for all of Thy bountiful blessings. Our God, we love Thee, for Thou hast first loved us, and Thou hast given Thyself unto us in covenant. We are bound unto Thee. We praise Thee for our forefathers in the faith who have all as well followed in the path of the Lord Jesus Christ and have laid down their lives not as a sacrifice for sins but have laid down their lives for the one who did die to forgive us of our sins. And we pray our God that Thou would give unto us that same grace to be faithful unto death. Thou would give unto us the desire to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou would cause us not to, uh, to be indifferent to the things of God but that our lives would exemplify those who are full of the Spirit. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that You would bless the Shackleford family. We ask our God that Thou would give unto them comfort at this time, that Thou would bless them with Thy Spirit, our God, you, Thou hast our, our days numbered. Every one of them is written in Thy book. And we pray, our God, that Thou would cause us to consider the shortness of our life. That we would not cling to our days and to our possessions and our riches as if they were of so much value that we should not live for Thee, that we should not follow Thee, that we can be loose and carefree in our faith. We ask Thee as well to bless Ian. We ask Thee to give to him grace and supply work for, for him and his family. We know that Thou hast promised Thy people that Thou would care and provide food and clothing and shelter. That we are furthermore commanded not to worry and not to be anxious for these things as the Gentiles are, as the pagans are. We ask Thee, Lord, to, to supply all of our needs according to Thy riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And finally, our God, we do pray that Thou would bless our congregation with one mind, with one voice, with one heart and spirit as we seek those things that will bring blessing to, to us and to our children, but most of all, as we seek those things that will bring Thee glory. 
We pray all of these things in the blessed name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Okay, you may be seated if you'd like to invite the children uh, to come forward. Uh, Greg is going to lead us, uh, I believe, in Psalm 23. <clears throat> so we'll. Oops, excuse me. You won't need a psalm book, especially for uh, especially for 23. The lines are very short. Uh, we'll just read them one at a time, and then we'll sing the line. Children, before we start, I just want to do something with each of you. Okay? Together, I all want you to repeat this after me, okay? See if you can repeat this sentence all together. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie. He makes me down to lie. Okay, any one of you that repeated that line, or those two lines, can sing this whole song. There is no excuse for anyone here not to praise God. You're all capable of doing this. Okay? So I expect everybody now to sing. Alright? Alright, let's begin. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie. He makes me down to lie. In pastures green he leadeth me. In pastures green he leadeth me. The quiet waters by. The quiet waters by. My soul he doth restore again. My soul he doth restore again. And me to walk doth make. And me to walk doth make. Within the paths of righteousness. Within the paths of righteousness in for his own namesake in for his own namesake yea though I walk in death's dark veil yea though I walk in death's dark veil yet will I fear none ill Yet will I fear not ill. For thou art with me and thy rod. For thou art with me and thy rod. And staff me comfort still. And staff me comfort still. 
My table thou hast furnished. My table thou hast furnished. In presence of my foes. In presence of my foes. My head thou dost with oil anoint. My head thou dost with oil anoint. And my cup overflows. And my cup overflows. Goodness and mercy all my life. Goodness and mercy all my life. Shall surely follow me. Shall surely follow me. And in God's house forevermore. And in God's house forevermore. My dwelling place shall be. My dwelling place shall be. Good this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, 
as it is well known and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.